Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Um, Before we get started, uh, let's go before God and pray and ask for his his blessing this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, no matter what, it's you who are working in our lives. It's not us. It's not up to us to, um, to fix everything in the world or to fix ourselves. Lord, you are at work, and we praise you for that. And as we hear your word this morning, as we uh, learn and as we uh, interact with your word, I ask that you would teach us, that you teach us who you are, that you would show us all the mighty things you've done, and that we would rejoice, that we would praise you more and more. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we've been talking about covenant theology. So covenant theology is uh, something that's incredibly important. We've talked about how covenants structure scripture and how it undergirds scripture. Um, it's really hard to talk about the Bible without talking about covenants. Um, some people make a good show of it, right? There are other traditions, there are other ways that people try to uh, explain the Bible without using covenant theology or by minimizing covenant theology. We've talked a little bit about that. We've talked about dispensationalism a little bit. Um, we've talked about Roman. Catholicism a little bit. Um, Part of the reason why covenants are so important is because they help structure everything that we find in the Bible. Um, And especially because we are in covenants. We are in a covenant with God. So it would make sense that we should try to find out what is the covenant we're in, what's the history of it, what does it mean for us, how does it affect our lives. Um, so these are all reasons why covenant theology is so important. And I think we always, we tend to have kind of a fuzzy definition, a fuzzy understanding. So I've, I hopefully we've started to sharpen things, starting to clarify and get down to what the details of, of covenant theology. Um, so we've talked about covenant works. We've talked about Adam's relationship with the Lord. We've talked about um, grace and what grace is. Um, The last time we talked about the difference between maybe it's unmerited favor, maybe it's demerited favor. At the end of the day, what we're really talking about is, is Adam was in a covenant of works, but we're in a covenant of grace. And that's really important because if Adam's not in a covenant of works, then Christ is not in a covenant of works. And we need Jesus to be in a covenant of works so that we can be in a covenant of grace. It doesn't work, get it, without someone doing the works, without Christ being the one earning something that is then given to us by grace. Um, so we talked about all of those things last, last week. There are a couple of questions that I actually wanted to, um, to just wrap up from last week that we get, didn't get to before we move on fully to um, the covenant of grace. Um, and part of that is... We, we can sometimes interchange the words grace and mercy, but I wanted to pitch the question to you, is there any difference between grace and mercy? Jonathan? Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve, whereas mercy is when you deserve punishment or something, or discipline, but you don't get it. Okay. So maybe grace is when you receive something that you don't deserve, and mercy is when you don't receive the thing that you do deserve, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there any any other thoughts or any other ways that grace and mercy are different?
Okay. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. There's maybe a sense where grace is uh, active and mercy is maybe more passive. Is that what you mean? Kind of more of the, the mercy is usually is what I think about mercy. It's something that like, you earn punishment and then your punishment is deferred versus grace, versus grace is just something given to you. Sure. That grace is something given to you, um, almost like a gift, some supernatural sort of gift that's given to you. Think about think about the definition of grace, right, as not simply something given to you, although I think that, that might be part of it, but as a stance of God, right? If we talk about grace as unmerited favor, that means that God has an attitude towards you. He has a stance towards you, and that one is is one of favor. It's one of, he looks at you and he loves you. He takes pleasure in you. Um, he wants good for you. That's grace, right? Looking at you with a certain attitude. is. Can you say the same thing about mercy? Does mercy an attitude? Maybe it's more of an action instead of an attitude. Any other thoughts? Let me let me ask you this. Does God have mercy on every human? Matthew? Uh, in a sense, ultimately, um, God gives a lot of humans what they deserve, which is hell. Um, so, in that sense, no. He, he has mercy on us because he does not damn us to hell. But now, all the grace that God gives us, I think, are undeserved mercies as well, because they are, um, well, I don't know, maybe that's just a bad way of putting it. Never mind, I will stop. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Um, Sean? I think God does um, give mercy to lost, as well as the saved. Because of the fall, everybody deserves immediate death. Mm-hmm. And yet, God still allows them to live long lives and blesses them. Yeah. So that's an act of mercy. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's a really key point, right? Is Adam and Eve sinned, death was the punishment. God would have been just to, at that moment, throw Adam and Eve into hell. Like that would have been a just act. Um, instead, he he had mercy, and he did not, in order to create room for grace to operate, in a sense. right? He had mercy on them, he delayed the punishment, and then he stepped in and said, actually, the punishment is going to fall on someone else. Someone else is going to be your savior. Um, mercy and grace are, are similar, because they're one way. You don't earn them. They only go one way. It's given to us just like grace is. Yeah. Well, let me let me paint you a courtroom scene. Right? You're standing before the judge as the accused. You've committed a bunch of, of, of big bad murders, and you're going to go to jail forever. Um, the judge says, okay, you've committed a bunch of big bad murders, but instead of throwing you into jail right now, I'm going to give you five years to kind of 
you know, clean up your act, get your life in order, say goodbye to your friends, and you're going to go to jail. That's mercy. He's given you an opportunity to, you know, make right out there, to make your life right, to say goodbye to people before you go to jail forever. Um, Grace would be you're standing before the accused, you've done a big bunch of big bad murders, and the judge says you're guilty and you're accused and you're condemned, hits the gavel on the hammer, and then instead of you going to the gallows, or instead of you going to jail forever, some other guy does. In your place. That's grace. Do you see the difference? One is maybe lessening or softening the blow of judgment for a time. Grace is the full weight of judgment comes down upon somebody, but it's not you. Somebody else takes the full weight of judgment for your sins, but not you. Someone stands in your place. That's grace. And mercy is more what the Lord does with all people. Right? The fact that this world still exists and that God is still blessing people even though they're not believers um, is an act of mercy, of delaying judgment for a time. And that creates space for grace to work. Right? Because as the Lord delays judgment, he's also providing room for the gospel to be spread so that people can hear the gospel and repent of their sins and be saved by grace. Right? We're not saved by mercy, but we're saved by grace. Does that make sense? Okay. I think that helps us as we start to talk about the covenant of grace, as we start to talk about um, how it shows up in the early chapters of Genesis, because we're going to talk about uh, the Noahic covenant um, and how the Lord, we see common grace going forth and we see mercy going forth. Um, But first, let's talk about the covenant of grace itself. So turn to Genesis 3. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have just eaten of the tree, right? They've just committed the sin. Um, And immediately after, right, they... They hear the sound of the Lord in the garden, and they run, and they hide themselves. And God finds them, and he says uh, in verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The very first words that the Lord pronounces after you know collecting the evidence is he first curses the serpent... And then he makes this promise. Right, Genesis 3.15 is, people will call it, like, this is the, the seed of the gospel, or the first gospel, the proto-evangelion, I think. Um, like, the first time that the gospel is preached is Genesis 3.15. Because in this, gospel, or in this verse, God makes a promise. Are there any conditions to this promise? Or in 
other words, when Adam was in the garden, right, he was given a condition to fulfill in order to earn the reward. Are there any conditions that must be met that Adam has to fulfill or Eva has to fulfill in Genesis 3.15? No conditions. Simply a promise. Right? That's one of the differences that we talked about between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace is where, who is... Who's fulfilling the promise? Who's earning the result, the reward? Is it man or is it God? And here the Lord is saying, I'm going to give this offspring regardless of Adam and Eve. It's not contingent upon them. It's not conditional upon their obedience. And so this is not a covenant of works. Instead, it's a covenant of grace. And what's, why does he say that this offspring is going to bruise the head of the serpent? What's significant about that? Jonathan? Generally, a wound on the head is fatal. Sure, it's a fatal blow. But why is that important? Because one is coming to crush the Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Satan will be defeated. True. But what, what about that is such a good promise? Because think about it like this. You could, you could look at it from this perspective and say, well, that's great, right? But we're still broken. Killing the one who deceived us in the first place, how does that affect us? How does that change us? How does that save us? We're no longer under Satan's control. We're no longer under Satan's control, right? Or under his influence. What should Adam have done when he saw the serpent? Should have crushed its head. That should have been the first thing, you know, all squishy and stuff. He didn't. He let the serpent talk to his wife. He watched as his wife was deceived and ate of the fruit, and then he took and he ate the fruit himself. No, no point did he say, you know what, I should probably like kill that thing, because it's saying lies and it's not good. He doesn't. And what the Lord promises is someone's going to come and do what Adam should have done. There's going to be an offspring who's going to come and do the thing that Adam failed to do. That's why crushing the serpent helps us is because someone's going to come and fix what Adam broke. Someone's going to come and and do what Adam didn't do because what we get from Adam is death. Which means that what we get from this offspring, whoever it is, will be life. Right? It's, it's the seed of the gospel promise that someone's going to come and redo and do perfectly what Adam was supposed to do. And notice that this is a promise. Right? There's no conditions that Adam and Eve have to make. But there's still a condition that has to be met. Right? There's still someone in this verse, in this promise, who's doing the work. Who is it? Christ is the seed. It's the offspring. Right? God is making a promise to Adam and Eve that someone else is going to do the work for them. Someone else is going to crush the serpent for them. 
you failed, but someone is going to come and do what you should have done on your behalf. See, this is, this is the covenantal framework of the covenant of grace. You failed, you're in sin, someone is going to come and do perfectly what you should have done, and that's going to be your salvation. So that's the, that's the framework of the covenant of grace. Right? It's not conditional upon you, but it's conditional upon someone else. It's not your works, but it still is someone else's works. Someone still has to fulfill the condition of crushing the serpent. And in the meantime, right, what happens to this offspring is he shall have his heel bruised. So even in Genesis 3.15, whatever the, the, accomplishing this work, accomplishing crushing the serpent is going to cost the offspring something. It's going to be sacrificial. Charlie? It's effectively like a stay of execution. So not only is the offspring fulfilling the condition in the original covenant of life, but he's also paying the consequence for that, um, you know, the, what, was, what had gone wrong, what had gone astray. So yeah. they are not receiving the debt that was promised to them in this moment, not fully. They experienced a separation. But God didn't cut them down. So he also... Is going to, their heels should have been struck. They yeah. Should have been struck down. So he's doing both. It's, it's you know, active and passive obedience being promised here. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. There's there's both the active where he's going to crush the serpent, but also the passive of, of receiving being struck in the heel, something that Adam and Eve should have received, that they should have been receiving this this strike, and yet this offspring, Jesus, is going to receive it on their behalf. So now I want us to jump forward a few chapters um, to Genesis 6. Because now we, we are living in this time after the fall where there's this promise that God has made. And yet, it's, it's clear from chapter 4 in Genesis that things are, are deeply wrong. That the fall has affected life on this earth so fundamentally, right, that Cain rises up and, and kills his brother, the first murder in the Bible. Things continue to escalate and get worse and worse and worse and worse until you hit Genesis 6, where it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives as they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Um, stuff about the Nephilim. We're not going to talk about that. Don't ask me questions about the Nephilim. Um, in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So let me ask you guys this. On what, on what basis is the Lord going to blot out all of mankind? Why is he? What's that? Total disobedience. So, you could say that man has deserved this. 
that this is deserved punishment. Um, but why does he save one person? Why is there one person that he says, but not him? So the Lord says he's going to blot out all mankind except for Noah. Because Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Because he made a promise. And the promise has not been fulfilled yet. Right. So whatever is going to happen, you know, spoiler alert, it's the flood. It's not going to erase the promise that God has made. Which means that all of mankind's evil and wickedness that has been piling up and is just destroying the earth cannot stop the promises of God. That God is going to fulfill it no matter what. But when he sends the flood and, and wipes out mankind except for one family, right, this, is, this is a picture of the last day. This is a picture of final judgment where you're either one of those who is destroyed or you're Noah. There's no middle ground. Right? There's no way to either be in the middle lane. And what we see is the Lord says to Noah and his family, right, build an ark. It's going to be you know, this big, this tall, have like 16 different windows and blah, blah, blah. A whole bunch of, whole bunch of stuff. It's got to be gopher wood. That's very important. Um, ask Brett why it's gopher wood. And this ark is going to be the means by which the Lord saves Noah and his family. And so this last, this flood is like this picture of last judgment where you're either in the world and you're dead or you're on the ark and you're safe. I think that's a picture of the covenants. Right? You're either in the covenant with Adam and you're dead or you're, you're in this covenant of promise and you have a way of salvation. I think the Lord is... is even in Genesis 6 and 7 and 9, 8 and 9, he's, he's showing us visually and graphically how we can be saved. It's not through our works. It's either you're in the world or you're one of God's family. It's the only way. Um, so let me ask you another question. And turn over to, um, to verse, or chapter 9. So the flood is, has destroyed the earth, and mankind has been wiped out, except for Noah and his family and the animals that he spared. And then God says in, in chapter 9, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. 
Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the, of the earth with you, as many as have come out of the ark, it is for every beast on the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of, of all flesh. So what's... Here's, here's a question for you guys. Is this a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? Jonathan? As a matter of fact, they do that. Probably, probably sin a lot. They probably did sin a lot, yeah. Literally, the only reason that they were saved was because they were the life of David, the life of David, and they would worship him. Mm hmm. Charlie, did you have your, your hand up? No. Same thing? Any other thoughts about if this is a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? Same promise? Okay. But what promise is, is God making? Let me ask you it like this. Is God offering salvation through the Noahic covenant? He's carrying on the lineage of the promise, so yes. He's promising to preserve the line. Any covenant that deals with preserving the line of the promise is one that is pulling out salvation through God's work. So no more will I destroy the face of the earth. No more will I bring immediate judgment upon the acts of men as I did before. Rather, I will prosper you until I bring about the promised one. So in promising Noah, continuation of his line is still God bringing about the offspring that he promised, and therefore it's still that grace. So... There are, I think there are other things in there, right? There are, you know, God is, is still their God. They are his people. He's a God to them. So it's still, this is what it means to be my people. But God is talking about what he's doing. I will no more wipe the earth as I did. Rather, do this and this and this. And inherent in these promises are his preservation of the offspring. So what promises is God making? Where do you see... He not judge the earth again as he did there. Mm-hmm. So he upholds both the lines, right? But... So not only is he upholding... Like, enmity is still in here as well, as was in the previous covenant. The enmity between the, the serpent's lineage and the woman's. They're still... Both are still in Noah and his sons. Which is why, even though after God judged the world, sin still propagated as these this family is repopulating the world, Right? But God is promising here another state of execution. I am no longer going to wipe man from the earth. Rather, I'm going to let you prosper. So you've used the word prosper multiple times, but that's not in Genesis 9. There's no promise. So in the command to be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth again, which is reminiscent of the previous covenant, 
The only way that happens is by God's grace. God is the one who gives life. He's the Lord of life. Mm-hmm. He is not only issuing a command, but he is the one who brings about those, you know, the fulfillment of it in time in Noah's day. So let's, let, let's just be specific. Okay. And... and <laughs> There's a reason why I want to be specific, because Genesis 9 is a specific covenant. And it's true that it serves the covenant of grace. Because by continuing the world, by not judging the world with a flood again, God is, again, this is mercy. This is God creating the space for grace to be able to operate. This is God delaying this final judgment, and saying, here's this picture of final judgment. This is what is going to happen if you're not part of my family. There is salvation by grace, but you have to be in the ark, which is Jesus, to experience that. That's the only way. So that means that, well, God promises to never again destroy the earth with a flood, that leaves a lot of other possibilities, right? Fire is one of them. Um, he could destroy it with a plague, famine, etc. Like, this still leaves room for the Lord to, to do temporal judgments and for the final judgment to still happen. The point of Genesis 9 is, I'm going to continue the world, I'm going to uphold it, and protect its, what he says, um, right, seed time, harvest, cold heat, summer, winter, day, night, shall not cease. These things will continue until that final judgment. That's the promise of Genesis 9. And it's not just to Noah and his family, but it's to every beast and every animal and every creeping thing and every plant. To everything in the earth. He's not promising salvation. He's promising that judgment will come later. Not just not right now. Charlie? So when you say he's not promising salvation, what does he mean when he specifically says to Noah, I establish my covenant with you? Mm-hmm. This is not a general covenant that is excluding humanity, which is God covenant's deal with humanity. So it just seems strange to say that when God is in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. Mm-hmm. And he says again in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. He's referring to something, my covenant, which the covenant previously was one of promise, right? I'm establishing my covenant, which is, I promise that the offspring will come. He's not referring to the creation, the covenant of life. He's referring to Genesis 3. So therefore, if he is reestablishing this promise with Noah, wouldn't it be an inference that he is establishing, he is carrying forth the line that he promised, and therefore the salvation. He is holding it out to Noah. He is not reiterating the promises of Genesis 3. He's creating, he's making a new promise. Because he says he's making it to every beast, every creature. Right. Because it's not just a Noah. I make my covenant with you and your sons and your offspring and every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that came with you, as many as come out of the, of the ark is for every beast of the earth. Like, yes, it's to Noah... But this is a promise that's... This is not God promising, I'm going to save you by grace. This is a promise that I'm going to protect this world until the last judgment. I'm not going to destroy it again like I just did until the last judgment. Sean? I think that's why this is typically called the common grace covenant. Right. So this is getting back to... 
yes, this is a covenant of grace, but this is not a covenant of salvation. God is not offering salvation by grace to every beast of the field or to every man that will ever come from Noah. Instead, this covenant serves the covenant of grace because it provides a way, a means by which the offspring that is promised shall come. So it upholds the covenant of grace. It supports it. It serves it. But it is distinct. So that's why I'm trying to be specific and why I keep doing this motion with my hands is because I'm trying to establish, like, there's the covenant of Noah that is serving the covenant of grace. So it, it just it has similar characteristics to the Proto-Evangelium, which also had common grace in it. When God says, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, he's promising to uphold both lines. The seed of the serpent isn't outside of God's will and propagation of life and blessings. It means I'm going to bring forth nations that will prosper and be mighty, and there will be war against both of you. So there's common grace in the Proto-Evangelion. So it's carried forward. This is why it sounds similar when he says, I'm establishing my covenant. It sounds like a reiteration of that. Because in Noah are both lineages. The world was destroyed, yet after the flood, sin fills the earth again. And so God is promising, I think, in that line, I'm making my covenant with you, is that this this disruption between the seed of the serpent and the woman is still there. But in that was a promise to prosper the seed of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent. So it just it just seems like there's... It, I think it's hard... I'm having a hard time seeing <coughs> continuity between this one and the old one. And you're saying it's serving it. I think you're right. But I think that it cannot serve it without including in it some sort of allusion, as I think is there, to that previous covenant. I, I just think that God saying it's my covenant and not a covenant is, I don't know, something that I think you're, I need to spend more so, so I think you're latching on to a couple of things. First, you're latching on to the word prosper. Which maintain maintain the life. I like maintain better. Yeah, yeah. He's promising to maintain, which means there's going to be times of, of good and times of bad. Um, secondly, you're, you're latching on to, I establish my covenant with you, as God's saying, I am making my covenant with Noah. But what he's doing is he's saying to Noah, in a sense, you're representing humanity again. That all of Noah's descendants whether they're elect or not, are being represented by Noah. And God is making this promise to all of Noah's descendants. I'm not going to destroy the world again in this way. That's the promise. What that infers is the covenant of grace is still in effect. It hasn't been wiped out. Because what we fear is, well, if God destroys the world, how will his promises come true? They can't. His promise cannot be wiped out by sin. So the covenant of grace is still in effect, and the covenant of, with Noah is a separate covenant that upholds and supports it and provides the space for it to be fulfilled, but he is not making a promise to Noah and all of Noah's descendants of salvation. He's making a promise of mercy and stay of execution and common grace. Michelle? I have a question. Are there more separate covenants later on in the Bible that serve the covenant of grace in this way that kind of flesh it out more. Yeah. They're more coming. Yeah. In a, in a, in a, in a more vivid way, the, the covenant of Sinai supports the covenant of grace. 
in a slightly different way, but yes. And as we go through history, as we go through covenant history, the covenants, the, the discrete covenants that come through Scripture are all intertwined and intermingled, and the whole point is the covenant of grace is the one that's connecting all of this. Now, the covenant of Noah branches off and says, well, we're going to establish covenant, we're going to establish common grace, and that's going to serve the covenant of grace because one question is, well, what do we do with death? How do we know, how can we be sure that God is going to keep his promise of an offspring if there's no more people? Well, God says, okay, I'm going to make sure there's always people so that the covenant of grace can still be fulfilled. Um, And the covenant of Abraham fleshes out further in what context the offspring is going to come, who is going to come from, and then you get all the way to the new covenant, which is even explicit, like Jesus is the offspring. The serpent's been crushed. You're saved. And the covenant of Noah is is providing the framework so that this world is not going to be shifted. We're not worried that God is going to decide, you know what, I'm not going to fulfill my promise. Instead, I'm going to destroy the world. God says, no, I'm going to remember my covenant, verse 15, that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So what it means is, is God covenantally binds himself to prevent another apocalypse until the last day. Uh, this gives us comfort, I think, because we live in a society that is obsessed with apocalypse. Um, just look at how many movies are out there about you know, how the world is going to be destroyed by um, climate change or war, nuclear war, or zombies are going to you know, come and eat all our brains. Um, th- these movies are super popular because I think we have an instinctual dread that God is going to destroy the world because we know it's going to happen. We know it's coming. And we're terrified of that last day which we should be. But this covenant gives us stability because God has said, I'm not going to do that. There's not going to be zombies and plagues that are going to destroy the world and the world's not going to be flooded and it's not going to be hit by an asteroid and every human being wiped out. He's promised to uphold it until the last day. So that's what this, I think this is what this covenant is about. It's, It's doing a specific thing. If that makes sense, um, Charlie, does that does that make sense? It does, but I can talk after. Okay. Um, are there any other questions about the covenant of Noah, about the structure or the purpose? That's a wonderful comment. Sean um, mentioned being a covenant, you know, common grace, and, and I've missed a lot of your. Sunday school talk about covenant, so maybe you already touched on this, but with this covenant being with Noah and all the living creatures, um, there isn't anything for anyone else to do. It's just God doing right. that work, which leads to people grace. He's, he's going to do it all. Yeah. For this particular covenant. Yeah. Yeah. This is a covenant of grace because it's, it's the Lord making a promise that He'll fulfill unconditionally. And yet, it's still a covenant of common grace in that it's not, it's not saving. 
He's not promising salvation to all humans and all and all lions and all tigers and all bears. Oh my! Um, he's instead promising that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood again. Um, and there's a few other things that the covenant of Noah does that I think are important. One of them is um, verse six, verse five and six. This covenant establishes justice in a post-fall world. What is that going to look like? Right, what is it going to look like for to live in a world where murder exists? That was not something that God had to deal with before the fall. Right? Not something that he had to command Adam and Eve. Right? If you, you know, kill someone, then you have to be killed and man has to shed your blood. That wasn't a requirement. But now... In a post-fall world full of evil and wickedness and sin, God has to establish boundaries, covenantal boundaries for the world, and how the world is going to work um, until the last day. And part of that is, whoever sheds the blood of man, this is verse 6, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Um, Which means that now mankind can execute justice um, on their own. Right? In a sense, the Lord is giving man permission to, to have a judicial system, to have justice for themselves and create systems of justice. Um, he's giving them the ability, even though the Lord is still sovereign and ruling over all the earth, he's giving them the ability to, um, to have justice. So one of the reasons why this chapter becomes so important is... Um, this is viewed as the chapter that establishes the basis for the civil government and for life in a post-fall world where we're trying to figure out, okay, what does it look like for mankind to have justice and to you know, build societies that are fair and just in a world that's full of sin and corruption and wickedness? Um, so if you want like 10,000 books to read on the subject, I can recommend a few. Um, yeah, we're, we're out of time today, but um, there might be a few more things we'll talk about next week in the Covenant of Noah, just to, to wrap it up. But, um, you won't be here next week. but I won't be here next week, so that won't work at all. So instead, Brett's going to teach you some really important things, I bet. Uh, right, let's pray and, and give thanks to God as we prepare for worship. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. We thank you that we don't have to fear the world crumbling uh, underneath our feet, but that we can rest in your covenantal faithfulness, that you will uphold this world uh, until the last day. And Lord, we don't have to fear the last day either because you've made a promise to us that we'll be saved by grace through the work of Christ. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. You are a mighty God, and we praise you. As we prepare to worship you this morning, may you lead our hearts that we might uh, come in humility and come willing and ready to praise you and to worship you. Thank you, God, for all you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.